good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My new novel, Escaping Dreamland, will be published on September 22nd. And so this week, I'm in the hot seat on Inside the Writer Studio. And our special guest interviewer is Ann Bogle, better known as the modern Mrs. Darcy. Ann was kind enough to host me on her stay-at-home book club retreat this summer. And I hope you'll enjoy listening to our conversation. Hi, Charlie. Welcome. Hey, how are you? Doing well. Charlie, I'm so glad you can do this. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a joy. It's always fun to talk to, right. to, to you. We, have a, we always have a good time together. So we're really looking forward to talking not just with you as an author, but you wrote a book about someone struggling with all those things, who's yeah. trying to get to the root of the personal stories of the writers who wrote the book. So we've got a real meta conversation here, and that makes us all kinds of nerdy happy. Um, <laughs> let's start... Our way in, and the reason for this three theme is because of your new book, Escaping Dreamland, and all those themes I just described. Would you take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about the book itself before we start getting into? Sure. So the book came from from several places. I had, you know, when I I had written Bookman's Tale, which is about Shakespeare, who was an author that I admired for a long time, and I'd written about Jane Austen, who I'd admired for a long time. But those are not the authors who originally got me you know, turned on to writing as a, I mean, to, to reading as a nine, 10, 11, 12 year old boy, I didn't have Harry Potter, you know, we didn't have those things. And so what got me excited about reading the first time was this, um, these 1960s versions of the Hardy Boys mystery series that belonged to my brother that were on a shelf in his closet. And I could just go and pull them down one after the other. And so I started thinking about that and about how as an adult, I discovered, you know, I thought Franklin W. Dixon, Carolyn Keene, like these are the great authors for kids. And then when I discovered as an adult bookseller that those people didn't exist, um, and I discovered the story of how these books were created and how it was one of the, really one of the great success stories in, in the history of publishing and a story that's mostly untold, I started to think, you know, there's, there's some depth here, there's some interest here. I'm not gonna make the argument that these books are great literature, but I do think they're culturally important because tens of millions of American kids got turned on to reading by reading these children's series books. And it wasn't just the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew in the early part of the century. There was a lot, a lot more of them. And so I was kind of thinking about this and like, could I write books about a book about people who wrote these children's series books? That might be kind of cool. And the publishing center at that time in the early 20th century was in New York. I love New York City. I thought it'd be a great opportunity to like learn about early 20th century New York. And it also felt to me like that the early 20th century was a time when everything seemed possible. I mean, this idea that um, Wilbur Wright comes and flies his plane up the Hudson River and a couple of million people who've never seen an airplane before line the river and see that. And just think about like this, 
this open century before them. And I, and I feel like that kind of went away with World War I and some of the things, but those first few years seemed like this kind of, um, this time when there was this, this hope and this openness. And so that, that interested me. And then the other thing was, when I wrote The Lost Book of the Grail, one of the key clues in The Lost Book of the Grail was a copy of the Arthur, King Arthur Legends illustrated by Arthur Rackham. And, it, and I picked that one because I actually have a copy of that book that belonged to my grandfather. I, I, I went into my grandmother's house after she died and there was a library of books and sa they said, everybody take a few books, you know. And I took some of the children's books. And the other books that I took were a couple of these books. Um, this is another series that was created by the same guy, Edward Stratemeyer, who created the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. They're called the Great Marvel Books. They came out in 1906. And these were, the, these were books that my grandfather had when he was a little boy. He has his little boy book plate in them. And so I thought, okay, let's read one. Let's see what they're like. Let's see. And so all those different factors kind of came together. But yes, I think the central thing was how, how books and stories affect us, affect our lives, affect our relationships. Um, I knew these books had been important to me growing up. And the more I talked to other people, like every time back when we used to have rooms full of people, like you were just saying, you know, I would say, who's read the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew? And like every single hand in the room would go up. Um, and so I knew these were, these were stories that, that we connected with in some way. And yet I'd never seen a novel that sort of delved into that world. Um, so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where I started. Now, for those of us who don't know, what do you mean that Edward Stratemeyer and Carolyn Keene yeah. didn't really exist? Tell so, us more. So Edward Stratemeyer was, was, a was a writer and, a, and an editor and publisher in the late 19th century into the, I think he lived into the 1930s maybe, but especially in the first two or three decades of the 20th century. And he created the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and Tom Swift and the Rover Boys and the Great Marvel Books series that, you know, scores of these children's series books, each of, each of which, each series had sometimes scores of books in it. So hundreds of titles altogether. And what he would do is he would, he would come up with the idea for the series. He would come up with the idea for the characters. And then he would write these outlines, maybe like a 10 or 12 page outline. And he would send that outline to a ghostwriter. And he would pay them a flat fee to write the book. So for instance, the first dozen or so Hardy Boys books were written by a Canadian writer named Leslie McFarlane. Um, he got paid something like $125 a volume to, to write those books, which you have to remember was pretty good pay for a flat fee for writing a children's book in the 1920s or 30s. On the other hand, if he had gotten royalties, <laughs> he would have made millions and millions of dollars probably because those books have sold tens of millions of, of copies. Um, and, but he chose, the, um, uh, Stratemeyer chose names like Carolyn Keene, Franklin Dixon, Victor Appleton, because that way, if he needed to switch ghostwriters, um, he could still keep the same name, the same author's name associated with the series. So for instance, Roy Rockwood, um, I'm pretty sure it was actually a guy named, uh, on this series was actually a guy named um, Howard Garris, who wrote the Uncle Wiggly books uh, under, his, under his real name. But he also wrote under, under pseudonyms for, for Stratemeyer. And I mean, it was amazing. They sold, as I said, tens of millions of these books. The company was a private family company until it was sold to Simon and Schuster in 1987, I think. Uh, and he had started out with with um, the Rover Boys, like in the late 1890s, so almost a century. Um, and of course, you can still buy the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and some of these others. Not many of them have have been forgotten, but 
Um, and, I, and I remember finding that out when I ran an antiquarian bookstore and we used to sell a lot of old copies of these books. And I just thought that was amazing. And, and still, like most people don't seem to know that. Um, I did an event right before COVID happened. I was in Nashville for the National Public Library Association. And one of the young librarians came up to me and she said, I wrote my master's thesis on Edward Stratemeyer. I'm so excited that somebody's written a novel about this. You know, um, So there are people who know, but I just thought this is, this is a cool story and a cool, a cool way in. I didn't want my characters to work for Stratemeyer. I like the idea of them being sort of outsiders trying to, to get into this world, but I definitely wanted his presence um, to be there because certainly in the early 20th century, he was, he was a gigantic presence in, in publishing and book selling and, and in children's books. I just want everyone to know there are so many different directions we can go. And Charlie, if we can just have you back like weekly sessions, we'll talk sure. about antiquarian book selling. We'll talk about your novels. We'll talk. Yep. What, what is it that causes us as readers that compels us to want to know more about the authors who write the books we love to read? Have I you thought about what's going on? I think that's such an interesting question because, you know, I thought about this discovering that Franklin W. Dixon didn't exist. It, it didn't strike a dagger in my heart because when I was a kid, authors were not, they weren't like people. Like it never occurred to me that there would ever be a chance that I could meet C.S. Lewis, you know, who was probably still alive when I was born or A.A. Milne or any of the, and now like I took my, I did a podcast with my nine-year-old nephew and Dave Pilkey, like we're like at his, his, his book idol. And so it's a, it's a really different world we live in now in terms of the relationship between authors and readers, um, not just children, but adults as well, than, than I lived in when I was growing up. And I think it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic that there are so many ways that authors and readers can connect. It's one of the reasons I love bookmarks. That's sort of their mission is to connect writers and readers. But, you know, I get emails from readers. I get to do things like this. I get to go to book clubs. I get to go on a book tour and go to, to stores and, you know, chat with people on the sidewalk, whatever. Um, but I think there is an intimacy in reading a book. I mean, I am asking you to spend 10 or 12 hours in my head when I give you a 300 page novel, you know, and there's an intimacy that comes with that. There is reading a novel is the second half of creating something artistic. Writing the novel is the first part of it. But, but when I write a novel, the artistic uh, endeavor is not completed until you read it. And every reader creates a different work of art when they read a novel. Even if I read a novel for a second time, I'm gonna create, a different, I'm gonna imagine it slightly differently. Um, and so I think because of that intimacy between reader and writer of, of you being in my head and me imagining myself being in your head, knowing that you're gonna complete this, this circle of creation. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why we feel a need to connect to each other. And it's not just readers who wanna to connect to writers, it's the other way around too. We want to, we want to connect. There's something amazing about hearing a stranger or even a friend, but especially a stranger, talk about your characters as if they're real people, because we think of them as real people, but to realize that other people do as well. So I, I think it really all stems from that, that intimacy in this creative act that we're doing together um, and wanting to extend and, and deepen that. Mm -hmm. Now, today you have a podcast that we talked about a little bit before you came on. It's Inside the Writer's Studio, just to tell everybody again. But 
before you had a podcast and you talked to authors all the time, I'd love to hear about an experience you had where learning more about the author's life changed the way you experienced the story. Oh, God. Not, not going all the way back to the beginning. We'll talk about that. I think the first time that I really, as knowing that I was going to be like a novelist, I mean, I had the, I had the contract for the Bookman's Tale. It was coming out actually in a few months. And it was the first time that with, with that, not weight on my shoulders, but with that knowledge, um, I sat down to talk to some other authors. Um, we were doing a book, an event at Bookmarks, and one of the authors that was coming was Melanie Benjamin. Uh, and Melanie had written a book about Lewis Carroll and Alice, a novel. And so I thought, she's got to come to the house. I've got to, we've got to play show and tell, you know. And so Melanie and Erica Roebuck, who has a new novel coming out in, in uh, January, February, I think, and Emily Collin all came to, to lunch at the house. And it was suddenly like I had these three older sisters. You know, they, as soon as they found out I had a novel coming out, they were just full of, of wonderful advice. Everything from just the nitty gritty of don't read your reviews on Amazon to, um, you know, I just, just, it just really felt like I was being welcomed into this community. And at the time that we had that lunch, I had read Melanie's book about, um, about Lewis Carroll, but I hadn't read any of her other stuff. And I hadn't read Erica's book yet. I hadn't read Emily's book yet. It was the first time I really had that experience of going and reading a book after I had met the author and talked to the author. And Again, it just felt like it extended the intimacy. When you, when you read a beautiful sentence, you were like, oh yeah, you know, I know her, I'm, I'm proud of my friend who, who wrote this beautiful sentence. You know, it, just, um, it didn't mean that you didn't get lost in the text. It didn't mean that the author was there in your head the whole time, but it just felt more personal, I guess. And, and it was a little bit closer to what it's like to just, I mean, storytelling, I honestly believe is what sets us apart from from the other animals. I mean, it's what, it's what makes us human. And it, and it began not as here, have this manuscript, read this book. It began as us sitting around in a circle around a fire, looking mm -hmm. each other in the eyes. Mm -hmm. And to me, if I've met the author, if I've talked to the author, I feel a little bit more connected to that um, sort of prehistoric notion of, of what story is, you know, to us as, as humans. Um, because I'm a little bit closer to looking in the eyes mm -hmm. than I would be if I, if I hadn't met the author when I, mm -hmm. when I read the book. Okay. That's really interesting. So we've talked about connecting to the authors. Now I'd love to talk about connecting with places in such a way that yeah. um, we can portray them, not just accurately, but with passion and emotion and in a stirring way that makes readers feel like they're there or want to go there. So your book, tell me you didn't change the epigraph in the final version. If no, I read this, is it going to be right? The beginning, yeah. Okay. So it's History not is happening in Manhattan. I'm not going to sing. And we just happen to be in the greatest city in the world. You can sing if you want. That's all right. <laughs> Lin-Manuel. Okay, so lots of questions about, uh, Nancy said, Charlie had me at the Hamilton quote at the start of Dreamland. <laughs> is he a fan of A.Dot Ham? Um, so you said that you love the possibility of New York City, just the, uh, the hope and openness of... Yeah. Yeah. A century gone by. I just love to hear a little bit. After writing several books set in Europe, um, you, you came to America, New York City. Tell us about that. So, you know, it, I came to New York because first, you know, starting, starting with this, like that's where these came from was New York. So, but I was very happy to come to New York because 
I can still remember like it was yesterday. The first time I came to New York City, I was in college. I was with a theater group. We were coming to see theater. We arrived on a Wednesday. Um, we took a cab in from the airport. It dumped us off in Times Square. We put our stuff in the in the uh, hotel, and I I walked out into Times Square, and I was just like so excited. It was just it was like Christmas morning. It was the most amazing feeling uh, to be in the city that I'd heard about so much. This was 1982. I went to my first Broadway show that afternoon. I saw Katherine Hepburn on stage. You know, I was like, yeah, I mean, it was just incredible. And, and I really wanted to sort of tap into that, that feeling while at the same time writing a book that was really about people who, who lived in New York, who, but who maybe didn't take it for granted, uh, who still felt in awe of the things that are so awesome about that city. Um, and then the more I learned about New York in the early 20th century, because you know, I wanted to set this against a backdrop of actual historical events. I was like, wow, there are some amazing events that I can weave into my narrative that fit perfectly with this story that are largely forgotten, that are just like incredible. I mean, the, the, to me, the, the biggest one was the General Slocum disaster. And this is, a, this is an event that almost everybody I talked to has never heard of. It was the largest single loss of life in New York City prior to 9-11. Uh, and I won't go into too much detail about it, but but one of the characters, you know, is involved in it. And there are sections, you know, there are sentences in that chapter that I lifted directly out of New York City newspapers from 1904, um, because like it, it, they were so immediate. This this uh, sense of being there, but it was really, you know, it's a city that I love. It's a city that this book gave me a chance to explore parts of it that I hadn't explored before. I hadn't spent a lot of time on the Lower East Side. And um, my child Jimmy and I went one day and we went and found the Slocum Memorial in Tompkins Square Park. And we found all of these buildings that have German on them from when it was Klein in Deutschland. It was the largest populate, the largest German urban population in the world outside of Berlin in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and so it was, it was really wonderful to, ex to both explore new parts of the city, but then also include in the novel parts of the city that I already knew and loved, like Central Park and the Upper West Side. And, you know, it's, you can write a million novels about New York. And the other thing about New York is it's not just the geography of the city. Um, it's, the, it's the people and the diversity. And New York is a place, like one of the questions that I think this book asks um, is what does it mean to be an American? Because the main characters come at this from very different angles. Um, and I think one of the great answers that New York City gives to that question is if there are 8 million people living in New York City, it means 8 million different things. Like it means something different to every person. Every one of us has a story that's an American story, but it's also a unique story. And I love that about, about New York, especially because they're just, you know, every person you pass in the street uh, has, has has these wildly different stories, and yet they've all come together in one place in one community. So it was really fun, and it was fun to see the parallels between the historic New York and the present day New York. I mean, I have I have a lot of the same buildings, a lot of the same places where you realize that a character in 2010 is standing in the same place that a character in 1906 was standing, uh, and sometimes it, it's exactly the same, and sometimes it's radically different. Uh, and that's the other interesting thing about that city in writing. The Lost Book of the Grail, which is set, is set in a medieval cathedral, 
that's really not that hard. There's plenty of medieval cathedrals still there. I can go and sit in one for hours and explore it. But 1906 New York is is pretty much gone. I mean, there are, yes, there are buildings and there are monuments and there are parks and things there. But there's no place where you can stand and be sort of totally surrounded by 1906 New York, the sights, the sounds, the smells. Um, so that was that part of it was really fun. Uh, it was a very different kind of research experience than what I've done in previous novels. We have readers who have asked us so many questions about your research, and I want to go into it. First of all, I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one who hadn't heard of the General Slocum disaster. Charlie, I love a book that can send me rushing to Google. And I was reading some of the things in your book. Um, my my uh, family, I think five generations back, were German immigrants. Um, yeah. I'd never heard of Kleine Deutschland. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about General Slocum. And some of the historical figures that I knew for different reasons. Um, well, they're in your book for other reasons. And I thought, did they re- did that really happen? Were they really involved in that? I, I spend a lot of time on uh, the History Channel and Wikipedia, and I love that. But, but people want to know, how do you get this right when, it, when a book is set in a time and place that doesn't exist anymore? Sure. And- it's, it, it's tricky. And, and just to, to touch on what you just said, and then I'll go back and answer mm-hmm. the question. I mean, I really love to include historical events and characters in a novel, but, but in a way that shows, and this is not to the detriment of a novel like Wolf Hall or something else, but, but in a way that shows how those great figures and great events affected ordinary people. Right. Because most of us are ordinary people. Most of us aren't King Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth or Thomas Wolsey, you know. And, and it, it fascinates me how something like the Slocum disaster changes, changes the community of, of ordinary people or Wilbur Wright or, you know, all these other things. But as far as the research goes, yes, it was very different. So there was definitely a lot of wandering around New York. Um, and that was super fun. My wife Janice and I spent a whole day just like in lower Manhattan, um, mainly because I needed to know what the view of the Statue of Liberty looked like from Battery Park. Like I needed to not look at pictures online. I needed to stand there and see like how big did it seem? What did it feel like emotionally to see that that view? And then, of course, what do you remember to, from that day? Well, one of the things I remember from that day was trying to imagine it not green, <laughs> because I have a character going to see it the day after it's unveiled, and it wasn't green yet. The, the copper takes a while to turn. You know, um, I also remember from that day going to Trinity Churchyard, and there was this mob of like 10, 11, 12, 13 year old girls crowded around the tomb of Alexander Hamilton, which we wanted to go look at. And at first I was slightly annoyed. And then I thought, this is so cool that these tween kids have come to New York and they want to see Alexander Hamilton's tomb, you know? Um, but as far as the research goes, uh, not, you know, was some, so some of it was that physical putting yourself in the place. And I love to do that. I mean, I did that. I've done that with all my other novels, but um, in this case, a lot of it was, um, there was a little bit of film footage from the time period of streets of New York that, that I could, that I could find. And that, that was helpful. There was a ton of photographs and newspapers. I mean, those are my two biggest sources were, and mostly these were things that were, have been digitized, which is really helpful to me. Um, but New York historical society, New York public library, uh, newspapers.com. I used, I used the library of Congress, um, newspaper archive, which is free. You don't even have to have a subscription for that. Um, and, you know, I would just read all the newspaper accounts, a lot of the names, like I wanted all of the German characters from, from Kleine Deutschland and from Magda's family. I wanted them to all have names that really existed in New York at the time. And so all of those characters have names. They're not, you know, I like took the first names and the last names and mixed them around, 
but all of those names actually come from the lists of the people who died in the Slocum disaster. Yeah. Like all those final last German names. I, I looked at digitized old city directories to find um, names and to find where, like I, I'm, I found these amazing digitized atlases at the New York Public Library that were done for the fire department. And so it's literally building by building. And I remember printing out this, this long strip of 23rd Street uh, and figuring out where all the different bookstores, Putnam's was here and Dutton's was there because there were a bunch of bookstores on 23rd Street in those days. And so I had these like posted up around my, around where I was writing so I could get the geography of it correct. And I'm like super picky about stuff like that. So there's a scene, for instance, when Magda is standing on the Hudson River watching Orville Wright flying up to Grant's tomb and she decides to send a telegram. She's walking back towards her house. So I like literally go to the city directory for 1910 or whenever that, I think that's when that scene was, or 1909. And I find where the nearest Western Union office was, and I made sure Magda stopped like on the right street corner where there actually was a Western Union office in 1909. Because I'm just like, I just think it's more, if I can believe it completely, and I know that it's right, then I feel like you're, I'm going to write it in such a way that you will believe it. Um, but it was, it was definitely a different kind of research. And I would say, uh, the newspaper archives were fantastic because newspapers in those days covered everything. I mean, two newspapers a day, most newspapers were morning and evening. And in New York City, there were dozens of different newspapers. Uh, and so, you know, they had to fill copy. And uh, there was, there's a, there's a scene where I have my, my modern day author is sort of researching the time period. And he just picks a random week and he reads the front page of the newspaper for that week. And so I did the same thing. I picked a random week and I read the front page of the newspaper for that week. And I was just blown away by how perfectly some of these headlines fit what was going on in my novel and what's going on in these children's series books. And so again and again, I had that experience of going to the source material to research something. Like I remember trying to see, okay, what was the Ringling Brothers Circus like uh, when, when Magda saw it in, um, in the old Madison Square Garden in... 1906 or something like that and there's there's a lot of exploration in escaping dreamland of identity and the way at that time and even now we are sometimes expected by societal norms to cover up who we really are to pretend to be somebody else other than who we really are so gene's character who gene's character was really tough because i had to discover the language that described what we would call just a gay man, you know, now. Um, the language was very different in 1906. The way it was looked at was very different in 1906. But there's a lot of places in the novel where somebody has to sort of dress up like somebody that they're not, either because they want to or because they have to. I'm researching the Ringling Brothers Circus, and I find this acrobat um, family that, that performed with them in, in the early 20th century. And the youngest one is... Uh, I can't remember if it was a little boy dressed as a little girl or the other way around. I think it was a little boy dressed as a little girl. And I was like, this, I could not have made this up. You know, it just fits in with the novel perfectly. So there were a lot of those moments. And, and that's one of the things I love about historical research is a lot of times it takes the idea you have and it magnifies it in a way that you never expected and that you probably couldn't have gotten away with if you had just made it up rather than figuring it out, you know. When you when you started your research process, when you dug into the archives, did you even know what you were looking for? How, what did you begin? So, how do you begin with the whole archives the first, of the Library of Congress? The first scene that I wrote in this book was the General Slocum scene. Oh, 
So, and I think I, you Which, know, I give found, us a feel for how far into the book that is, Charlie. So that's now, I think that's, I don't know, maybe 40 pages into the book. I'm not quite sure. Cause I can't remember. I re we rewrote the beginning of the book so many times. <laughs> Um, but I knew there was gonna, that I was going to introduce these three historical characters in three separate scenes. And I knew that each one of them was going to have some sort of tragedy in their background. I mean, all four of the characters have tragedy in their background. And one of the, you know, I didn't realize until I was sitting here in the COVID lockdown that one of the things this novel is about is how we move on after tragedy. Yeah. Um, and they all do it in a different way. So I knew Magda's was going to be the Slocum because I, you know, I had done some very light research. I started, you start out just by like, try to find a book about New York during that time period. There's not a lot. I mean, usually it's reading one chapter in a history of New York. Um, you know, I had a book about the Gilded Age. And, and so I found out through doing some sort of light research about the Slocum disaster. And I thought, okay, this is where I'll start. And so that's, I went to the newspapers and read, you know, all the accounts day after day and found the sort of, you know, I knew I needed to sort of narrate the whole thing, but there's also these sort of specific points where you go, okay, this is a moment that really needs to be brought up. The, when I read the thing about the little boy climbing up the flagpole, I was like, oh my God, that is just, it's like this amazing, heartbreaking uh, visual, you know, and I did, I do very much look for visual moments. Um, I think I sometimes see those scenes almost um, as a cinematographer. And so when, it, when I'm doing the research, you know, there'll be like these long narrations about this or that and the other, and then there'll be these visual moments. You're like, yes, that's the spot. That's the thing I need to narrate. Um, so, so it started that way. And then a lot of times I would go back to the newspaper or, or other sources when, when I started to have questions or I was like, okay, I would like them to go to a concert. Okay. Was Carnegie Hall there? Carnegie Hall is great. You know, I've sung at Carnegie Hall. Everybody knows Carnegie Hall. So yes. Okay. Carnegie Hall was there. Okay. Who's at Carnegie Hall in the autumn of, uh, 1906 or spring of 1907. Uh, and you start looking through the, the advertisements until you see a name that you know is going to be familiar to modern readers. Like Camille Sasson is performing at Carnegie Hall. Great. That's way better than saying some pianist that, that 20th century readers have never heard of. Like this way, at least I know people who know music are going are gonna to know that. So there was a lot of that. But again and again and again, these moments. I mean, I think, I guess the most stunning one for me was the scene where Magda and Jean are walking down um, uh, the, the, what do they call the women's mile where all the, where all the um, department stores and things are. And it's Christmas time. And I first had to find out, did they have Christmas windows in those days? Yes, they did. Okay, so, I, so they're looking in the windows. And this is after the big long scene at Dreamland. Um, and they come to this window that's, the whole thing is Coney Island in the summertime. And there's a whole window that's just devoted to Dreamland, it's reproduced. In, in miniature. I didn't make that up. That, I just found that in the newspaper. I mean, I almost fell out of my chair when I saw that because like, this is so perfect. You know, so you wouldn't have made that up. That would have been no, too audacious. Because it would have been, yeah, it would have been pretentious to make that up. And, um, but you know, there it is. And, and one of the things I loved about those old newspapers is often I learned as much or more from the advertisements as from the actual um, articles because the advertisements are really speaking directly to the readers in a way that that almost the articles aren't. I mean, the articles were great for like the descriptions of the different rides at Dreamland and things like that, but the advertisements let you know like 
what what Broadway shows are playing and and you know who's who's at Carnegie Hall the the um the baseball game that they go to actually happened I need to, I like I got to find a baseball game that's in New York that's during this three week time period that the home team wins you know hopefully with the dramatic home run at the end which is you know and I found one you know <laughs> so so those sort of things were really really fun to sort of suss out Charlie. At this point, we're surprised you've been able to finish one book, let alone <laughs> as many as you've done in the course of a career. Give us some feel for the time frame and scope of the research, because seriously, it, it's a miracle that you ever finished. So, you know, it's been three and a half years, is that right? Yeah, three and a half years since my last, last book came out. I had sort of one, two, three, you know, and then it's, this one's, this one's been longer. And not all of that is because the research and the writing process was a little bit longer. Some of it's just because of the vagaries of publishing and, and everything else. But um, to me, there's, I have sort of probably three stages, really. And so one of them is uh, what, what in school they used to call pre-writing, but it's just, okay, I'm going to start to read some books about this time period. I'm going to read, um, I'm going to read a couple of these books and, and see what, what's in there and what I need to, to find out. You know, I found out how these books are, are put together. I also found out a lot of the weaknesses of these books, the, the inherent racism that's in some of these books from the early 20th century and things like that. I'm like, I'm not going to ignore that. How do I address that? So a lot, so that's sort of, that's sort of my deep background research, getting a feel for the time period. Um, and at the same time, I'm trying to find out who my characters are. Um, so I will do, I mean, I'll start out with just little sketches. Okay, you know, what if what if one of them is a German immigrant who really wants to be an American? What if one of them is is from an old Dutch family and they live in one of those big Fifth Avenue mansions? You know, I'm trying to think of different different aspects of the story of New York. Um, and so I'm I'm working on who these characters are and doing little character sketches, which will start out as a few sentences and might end up as two or three pages of just sort of who they are and what their story is and maybe a little bit about their background. Um, and, and then it's a question of finding, uh, finding the scenes. And I don't usually work from an outline, but I will have in my head, like I, I knew like the Slocum, that's going to be a scene. Okay. Boom. I knew I could start working on that. I was actually on book tour with it, with the previous book. Um, and I was in Southern Pines, North Carolina for a day. And they have this old house in Southern Pines that has, that it's owned by a local nonprofit. And upstairs they have these rooms that are supposed to be for visiting writers. I was like, great, I will, that is where I will start my novel, you know? And I had the whole day between events and I sat there and started working on the, you know, and, and the first day you maybe don't write very much because you're still doing research like on a sentence by sentence basis. So, so that, that's the big, the, sort of the first section. Then the second section is writing the first draft. Once I know enough, I can sit down and start writing the first draft. And writing a first draft to me is a little bit like, um, a, a getting a train moving, you know, ideally when we're, when we're up to speed, I want to be writing about 10,000 words a week. Uh, so that's 2000 words a day, five days a week or work on the weekends. If you don't get your, your, your work done, that's a <laughs> lot easier to do in the second half of the book than it is in the first half of the book, because by the second half of the book, I pretty much know what's happening. I know the characters, I know how they act. Um, and you're excited about getting, telling the rest of the story and you're kind of working your way downhill. Um, at the beginning that, you know, you, the first week is, can be tough, but it's, a, it's about discipline that the writing the rough draft for me is very much about discipline and, and about, there's one word that I never use, which is, I don't use the word goal. Um, I don't say it's my goal to write 2000 words a day. It's my job. 
um, you guys all have jobs where you can't go in and say, oh, I have surgeon's block today, so I'm going to quit this operation in the middle of your surgery. No, you have to you have to do your job what's supposed to be done that day. So I'm, you know, I'm the same way when I'm doing the first draft. And then the third section is the rewrites. And this book, I will say there was more rewrites on this book than, than probably my previous two novels, at least, because it was just, it was just a, a more complicated beast in some ways. Uh, and not that I hadn't done the split time before, but I had basically four main characters. Um, and that was, that was a new thing. And, and the, the figuring out the connections between the modern character and the, and the old characters was a new thing uh, in terms of the way this particular book worked. They were, they were a little bit more tenuous and, uh, and there wasn't the, this book doesn't quite have the driving mystery. I mean, there is a mystery in this book, but it's not, the mystery itself is not as central to the book to me as it is in some of my other novels. To me, this book was much more about the characters. Um, and so for all those reasons, I think the rewriting took, took a little bit longer and I went, went through more drafts and added bits and took out bits. Um, so to answer your question about how long all that took, that's a really good question. It was probably, you know, from when I first was lying in bed, recovering from surgery, thinking about maybe I could write about the Hardy Boys until um, this arc showed up on my, on my front doorstep was, you know, probably might've been three years for this book, um, which, which is a little bit longer than usual, but, um, but I like that. I liked spending time with these characters. I can't write characters if I don't want to spend time with them. Even, even bad, even the antagonists, you, even if you don't, if you do, even if you wouldn't like them, if you met them on the street, I still have to like them in some sense like spending time with them because because i gotta spend a lot of time with them um i i mean magda i adore magda and this is a it seems like a really self-centered thing for an author to say but to me she is no longer something that i created she is a she is a separate person and 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 i just i, I she's very special to me you know charlie we had a class on putting your reading experience into words yesterday where we talked about how to um ask ourselves questions about character and theme. So speaking of theme, you mentioned that you wanted to explore what, it, what does it mean to be an American mm -hmm. and that the question of identity, who you are, how do you present that to the world um, and how, what happens when that comes up against cultural expectations, that those things were really important to you. Speaking of being culturally important, those are things that we're discussing every day in the headlines that people can read about in our future archives right now. Um, I'm really curious to hear three and a half years ago when you started working on this book, what was it about those themes that made you want to explore them through the form of a novel? And how has your understanding of those things changed as, as your work on the project evolved? Sure. I mean, I think probably the biggest theme that where that, where that strikes is is this idea of identity. Um, and, you know, we've certainly changed as a society in the way that we, um, uh, that we see people in the LGBT community. I think for me, there were, there, there were a number of um, things that started that. I mean, one was being in college, my best friend, my roommate was a gay man in the early 1980s at a time when that carried a lot more baggage than it does now to be perfectly honest. I mean, I can remember going with him when he would go, he, he couldn't really be fully out, but I can remember going with him 
when he went to talk to one of his favorite professors to, to, to come out to him. And like, I went to sit outside the door in case it didn't go well. And he needed somebody, he needed a shoulder to cry on afterwards. Like that was the world we were living in then. So we've come a long way. Um, but I had sort of that, that background. Um, I, I have a child who lives in New York City who's non-binary. And, um, you know, I have, through them, I have learned so much uh, about, about that whole world and um, about pronouns and about everything else. So I think, I think that made me like really aware of, of um, the, the identity changes that they have gone through and their own struggle to sort of figure out their identity and their explanation of how that is um, a, almost a daily thing. I mean, we were going to have a big family beach vacation not too long before I started on this novel, maybe a year before that. And, and Jimmy actually sent a letter out to everybody who was coming, like an email, and said, let me explain some things to you. First of all, I go by Jimmy now, and, um, and, and sort of explained like what it meant to be non-binary. And at the end of the letter, they said, um, if this all sounds confusing to you, trust me, it's even more confusing to me than it is to you, and I wake up with it every morning. So I was, I was really aware of that, about how, um, and I remember being at Jimmy's college graduation at Hampshire, the speaker was um, Laverne Cox, and she talked about um, always being, asking that question of yourself, of what is, your, what is your identity, and being true to whatever the answer is, but also knowing that the answer today may not be the same as the answer tomorrow, mm -hmm. um, and, and that that's okay. Um, so, so a lot of that was going, coming uh, you know, in, my, in my personal world, um, of me not necessarily coming to, to grips with these things, but just sort of understanding on a deeper level um, that there was, there was, that acceptance is like the first step and not the last step. Um, and then I called, I called Jimmy and I was like, I'm thinking about having a gay character in New York City in the early 20th century. What do I need to read? You know, you've, you've taken college courses on, on the queer experience, you know, fairly recently. And Jimmy's like, you gotta read this book called Gay New York. And I read the first three chapters of that book over and over and over because it is so hard to write about a community that was a margin. Marginal communities don't show up in the history books. Marginal communities don't show up in the mainstream um, press. I mean, I remember talking to Rebecca Mackay about the great believers and that's set in the 1980s. And even she was like talking about the difficulty of researching the gay community in Chicago in the 1980s because marginal communities don't, don't get recorded by the establishment, you know? And so it was even harder in the, in the early 20th century, but it was also fascinating because it, it absolutely cut to this core of, of what creates your identity. Is it, is it who you are? Is it how you act? Is it what you do? Is it how you dress? Like all these different things were, were part of that experience in the early 20th century. And then I thought I can, I can expand this just beyond my interest um, in this queer character to, you know, here's a woman who really wants a particular job that is only going to be given to a man. Can she dress up like a man and get the job, you know? Um, and, and, you know, through, throughout, and then here's a, here's a man of great wealth who really wants to spend his time talking to boot blacks and newsboys. Can he change who his identity and who he is through the way he looks? So all, all of the characters and, and then Robert, the main character is sort of denying a part of his past that is, and that's keeping him from sort of moving forward with, with who he really is in, in his relationship. So um, yeah, to me, it was a really interesting theme to explore.
explore. One of the great things about writing books is the theme that you have in mind is not always the theme that the reader sees, and that's totally fine. Like I said, I didn't really think long and hard about the theme of moving on after tragedy. I'm not sure why it was that I wanted each of my characters to have a tragedy in their past. I just thought, I mean, I guess I started out with the year 1906 because that's when the, the, these um, great Marvel books came out. And so I was like, what happened in 1906? Well, I know just enough history to know that the big thing that happened in 1906 was the San Francisco earthquake. So I was like, you got to put somebody there. And then I was like, okay, tragedies, what else? Um, so, so it's interesting how those kind of, those sort of things come together. But so I think the theme is, is whatever you want it to be. But the theme I was thinking about the most when I was actually working on it was definitely this theme of identity yeah. and how our identities are shaped by ourselves, the people around us, our society, and, and when are we being true to who we really are and when are we putting on a pretense for whether it be for a loved one or for a job or for societal norms or anything else. And how can we, how can we move past that and just allow everybody to, to be true to their own identities? Yeah. Charlie, we told you not to watch the chat, but um, lots of uh, thank yous and for, for speaking so openly about your family and for um, Jimmy and their experience. I'm just thinking as an author, that must be terrifying to want to do justice to your child yeah. your child's experience and then your fictional character that really exists for you as a person, um, though not a person. You talked about how you feel like you made Magda real. Um, talk, talk to me about feeling that, that pressure. I can see how that could almost be paralyzing. And if you're in the middle of writing the book, I wouldn't phrase the question that way, but we know it's done. I got it right here. So, so here's the great thing about that. The really cool part about that is that Jimmy is writing too. Uh, and like, I've read Jimmy's manuscript and, and I'm like, Jimmy, let's submit. Come on, come on. You're rewriting and you're rewriting. This is good. You're, you're ready to go, you know, send it to my agent. Um, and so I could call up, I mean, so here's a great example. So Jimmy read Escaping Dreamland, you know, fairly late in the process, but certainly before we did editorial with, with the publisher, um, had a few suggestions here and there, but the biggest suggestion, and, and I knew this would happen. I was like, there's going to be something in here that I've gotten wrong that Jimmy's going to help me with. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy um, went through several years of binding, um, you know, wrapping, wrapping themselves to, to seem more male. Uh, and there's a scene where, where Magda has to do that. Uh, and Jimmy's like, okay, I got to help you with this scene, dad. You know, you, you, you know, it, it's not as comfortable as you think it is, you know, and it was fantastic because with, in just a few sentences, Jimmy was able to explain to me what I needed to do to that scene. I rewrote the scene. I sent it back to them. They're like, yes, this reads much better. Um, so that, you know, the fact that, that Jimmy is really open to sharing their experience with me, um, and to, and to turning a critical eye to their own father's manuscript. Um, and I do likewise. I mean, I said, we, you know, we read each other's books and, and we suggest that was super helpful, especially in the case of this book. Um, because I knew as an outsider, you know, there's going to be things that you're going to get wrong. And this is kind of the, the dichotomy that, that we live in right now is that we, all of us, whether we're, whether we're cis white male writers like me or we're trans black females or whoever we are, we, we want to have diversity in our books. We want to, we want to show um, a, a broader cultural viewpoint, but we don't want to appropriate. Um, and, and there's a certain, there's a certain challenge there to, to try to get that right. Uh, and, and Jimmy's like my secret weapon. 
uh, for for that. And so um, so that was really helpful. I mean, you have other secret weapons for other things. You have um, my first wife, Stephanie, Jimmy's, Jimmy's mom is like my secret grammar weapon. She's like the best copy editor ever. The reason my copy editors and my publishers like my books is because Stephanie copy edits them, copy edits them first and catches all the places where I forgot to put closed quotes in and everything. Um, and also, you know, she's a Latin teacher. So she does all the Latin phrases from like the lost book of the grail, all that, all those things. So you, yeah, you've got to have your secret weapons. I'm really lucky that my family, uh, during COVID, I, I have a, I have a new novel that's just in manuscript now. Um, one of the first things we did in COVID, I had just finished the first, maybe about the third draft and felt it was ready to share with somebody. And so I read it out loud to my wife, Janice. Um, and she, it was great because she was doing um, needlework and it was right before she started making masks. I was, I needed to read the thing out loud. It's good to hear it out loud. And she had fantastic suggestions, especially about the last scene. She was like, you know, she made a two sentence comment that made me totally, not totally, but significantly rewrite the last 20 pages of the book. And it was so much better. So, you know, you've got to have those, those secret weapons all along, but for, for escaping dreamland, yeah. uh, you know, Jimmy was definitely one of them. Okay. I have to share one comment with you from chat. Please pass it along to Jimmy. OMG. When can I pre-order Jimmy's book? All caps, <laughs> exclamation points, question marks. Uh, you know, I hope soon it's, it's pretty cool. I got, I mean, I, I probably can't say a lot about it right now, but it's, I put it this way. Jimmy's writing at age 27 is way better than my writing was at age 27. So if that's anything to go by, um, we, we should be in for, for a treat. Charlie, thanks for being so generous with uh, your story and your family story. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you guys have all these questions, but they feel like the, okay, here. I'm not going to ask you about your favorite writing snack now. How about that? But what I would love to hear is um, we haven't talked about your character in the contemporary timeline. Yeah, so sure. we've gotten to hear some about you as an individual, and I'd love to hear a little more about other aspects of your writing life. The specific question we have from a reader is, do you share any affinities with your fictional author, Robert? Uh, Robert says that he understood how to write a novel, but felt eminently unqualified to be a novelist. Now, yeah. Charlie, today, I don't think any of us would agree with you feeling like you agreed with Robert, but we're not, we're not the one at the chair every day. So, I mean, there are things, I would say that, you know, our biggest difference is that Robert doesn't like doing what, what I'm doing right now. Uh, and I, and I love it. I love connecting with readers. I love doing events. You know, I was a theater major. My wife describes me as a ham and I think that's perfectly fair. Uh, and so, so, but I do think that one of the things, the thing that I do share with Robert is a little bit of feeling like, I haven't really read Tolstoy. Um, you know, I haven't read tons of Hemingway. I haven't, you know, that I am, I, I always feel a little under read. Um, and, and, uh, and I can remember sitting in my editor's house in uh, the West Village having dinner and, and the question came up like, who's read Wolf Hall? And I was like, I haven't read Wolf Hall. And actually, I'll be honest, I didn't read Wolf Hall. I read about the first 50 pages and I was like, it's just not for me. And it, which is like, everybody has, you know, that's one of those books where it really does seem to fall into two categories. Like either you loved it or you just didn't, you know. I keep um, saying I'm going to try again, but it hasn't happened yet. Okay. Well, I mean, to me, that book was an example of like, I love the domestic part of it. I was less interested in the political part. Mm -hmm. of it. But um, so I think I do share that with Robert. I mean, Robert started out as a paragraph written in the second person which was 
um, something along the lines of you get this question all the time. They ask you, who do you, what books do you read? What books you were influenced? And you know, you can't say the Hardy boys. You can't say, you know, Tom Swift or, or Nancy Drew, you have, which are, which is the real answer to the question. You have to come up with something that sounds sophisticated and, you know, and, and that was kind of where Robert began was with this, um, this feeling not quite worthy of, of his success. I think, I think any novel, any successful novelist who's not gigantically egotistical, which I'll be honest, is most of us. Most of us are not, again, I mean, I've met a few, but most of us, I gotta be honest, I've met a lot of novelists and they're mostly pretty nice people. We all, we all have that little voice that's like, yeah, you just got lucky, dude. You just got lucky, you know, but you're not really all that. And I don't think that's a bad voice to have necessarily. I think it's better than the voice that says you are all that, you know. Um, so I share that with, with Robert a little bit. Um, but but essentially, but he's a pretty different person uh, from me. I, you know, the the great irony uh, of this book, to a certain extent, is that um, you know Robert is dealing with some issues having to do with the death of his father. Uh, my father died two and a half months. Well, now uh, he died in in February. Um, you know, right right when we were doing final edits for this book, um, that was not a point of connection for me at the time that I was writing it, but it's a big point of connection for me now. Um, and so I, so I, so that's, you know, it's so interesting how your relationship with your characters can evolve even after you've written them. Um, but in terms of the way I, uh, approach writing in the writing world. Yeah. I think, I mean, you've listened to me talk today, so you, you, you get a sense of it. Um, I think that's, I'm not too much like Robert in that way. Um, but I think all of your characters come from a part of yourself and a part of, the way that you observe the world. So it's not fair to say that any character is completely unlike me. I have little parts of Gene in me. I have parts of Magda in me. I have parts of Robert. I have parts of Tom. Um, but none of them are, you know, sort of based on me. And Robert certainly wasn't, wasn't meant to be based on me. Um, I, I wanted to portray sort of a, a different kind of writer. And I wanted to portray somebody, again, who's sort of struggling with this question of identity, who's, who's trying to figure out who he is in this new world that he's just been given um, the key to the door and and it's it's a strange place to him and he's he's trying to figure out how he fits into it um and and i think to me that's a that's a universal thing there's that's always happening to all of us we're always trying to figure out how we how we fit into the world and especially as if you start a new career if you move to a new town if you make a new friend if you join a new book club um you know that you're always trying to sort of say okay where what's my place here how do, how do i fit in and so that's that's this moment in Robert's life um, that's happening that sort of triggers all this stuff from his past that, that comes you know, welling up. Charlie, what do you hope that readers will take away from the book? Now, you said that we make the work of art as we read it, that, that we are a full half of the experience as a reader. But I can't imagine that you wrote this story and focused on these themes without hoping um, that we would feel compelled as readers to think about topics in a certain way. Cause that's the thing about a novel. It sneaks in through the back door and, yeah. and does spur you to, to reconsider things. Well, I mean, one of the, the my first answer is, is a cop-out answer. And that is, I, I hope you really enjoy your nine or 10 or 11 or 12 hours with this mm -hmm. book. I hope that's you enjoy right. spending time with these people. I enjoyed spending time with them. To me, it's like, it's like having a party where you introduce, two sets of friends who haven't met each other before 
and you really hope they all get along because because you like them all and you want them to like each other. So so that's I mean that's kind of number one because if you do, if that doesn't happen, then none of the rest of the stuff can happen. If you're not enjoying the book, if you don't like the characters, then then you're probably not going to go to the next step. Um, I I do hope there's something about this novel that will let people say it's okay for me to be who I am. Um, I think I think about words that I said at my father's funeral. Um, my mother died when I was two years old, and I observed in my father how not as a two-year-old, I was too young to remember it, but, but in later years, I observed how that remained a presence in his life, that loss, and yet didn't overwhelm his life. Um, and I'm trying to remember the exact way I put it, because I, I, I gave the eulogy at his funeral, but, but essentially it was that, um, you know, we can grieve, but still move on. Um, we can recognize the loss, the loss can become a part of us, but it doesn't have to destroy us and he wouldn't want it to. And that's what all the characters in this book deal with. Um, how do I, how do I balance loss with life? Um, and to me, in a way that's almost a central question of the book. And one of the ways I, I realized that that was a central question of the book is that there's this sentence. And I know there may be some people listening who, who haven't read the whole book yet, so I don't want to give it away, but but there was a sentence that every time I got to it, reading through the book, it just, it just got me. I mean, I know, again, it sounds egotistical to say that, but it just sort of, I would get to that sentence and I would just like tear up every time I got to it. And I finally realized that this sentence, I mean, it took me like five times because I'm so thick in the skull. I finally realized this sentence was telling me, I am the last sentence of the book. You need to put me at the very end because this is the way you want your, your readers to feel. You want them to feel wistful, and nostalgic, but you also want them to feel hopeful and alive. And so to me, it's about how do we balance the past and the present? How do we respect the past? And this is part of our national discussion now, you know, how, how do we respect the past and our past and our history without allowing it to overly control who we are and who we should be? Um, and, and so that, I think that's why that, that sentence kind of went at the end and it's sort of, it's more metaphorical in the particular sentence, but, um, uh, but I, so I think those are the, those are the things I would like people to come away with, come away with, with realizing that you can be nostalgic, you can love the past, but you don't have to let it control you. You can recognize the weaknesses in it, the mistakes in it. Um, you know, I can love my grandfather, even knowing that, you know, he lived in Georgia in the first half of the 20th century and was probably pretty racist, you know, um, that, that we can, we can balance those things and we can, uh, we can do that to our own benefit. So, you know, and, and that may be the way that it fits into the current national conversation. Um, but, but to me, it was like, it was this way of, of looking at how, how we balance nostalgia with reality, the, the past with the present, who we were with, who we are, with who we want to be. Um, and that those, those things can all go hand in hand. And I think Magda probably is the best example of that, you know, um, and maybe it's because she lives the longest, but. You know. mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Charlie, this is going to be hard, but I have 10 quick questions. Oh no. To wrap up with. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda, for the suggestion. You know what's coming, right? I know what's coming. It, uh, I didn't prepare for this, by the way. <laughs> 
Friends, these are Charlie's questions that he asks every guest at the end of his episodes of Inside the Writer Studio. One, <laughs> what word do you love to work into the writing? Uh, I like words that are mellifluous, like mellifluous. <laughs> Two, what word do you hate to encounter in another person's writing? I, like, I don't like meaningless modifiers, like definitely. Three, where is your favorite place to write? Uh, in, in my office, looking out over the back garden. Four, where could you never write? You know, it's amazing to me how many people give this answer. They say, oh, I can never write at a Starbucks. There's this image that we all write at coffee shops. Um, I couldn't write any place where there's like a loud TV blaring in the background, like an airport lounge or a, or a bar or something like that. Five, to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Um, definitely sentence fragments, definitely starting sentences with conjunctions. Those are, those are probably my two big ones. I love, I love a good sentence fragment. I think it can really pack a punch. Six, what was the first book you remember reading? The first book I remember reading, like I could sit down and read it all the way through without adult assistance was Go Dog Go. <laughs> I love it. Anybody else tell us? <laughs> uh, seven, what are you reading now? Uh, so right now I'm reading Kevin Kwan's uh, Sex and Vanity. I'm about two thirds of the way through. Uh, it's, you know, it's a fun romp with the super rich, you know. Eight, what book would you like to have written? Oh gosh, I mean, my go-to answer is To Kill a Mockingbird, but then there's like, there's so many, there's so many books from my childhood that, that, uh, mean so much to me that I could, I mean, I could put the Chronicles of Narnia in that, in that category. I could put the Hobbit in that category. I just, there's a million of them, but. Nine, what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Probably, you know, a sci-fi fantasy where, where you really can create the whole world from scratch. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm amazed by the world creating of Tolkien I'm amazed by uh, Andy Weir's The Martian. You know, those, the, I know those are two like radically different kinds of books. And one of them is fantasy and one of them is sci-fi. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I'll ever get there. And 10, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I think the, the emails and the face-to-face the -face conversations that mean the most to me is when the, when the reader says um, that this book really meant something special to me, really helped me deal with something in my life. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I've had that a lot with Bookman's Tale because it's about a widower. Mm -hmm. um, but, but when you know that it's not just been a few hours of enjoyment, but that it's, it's something that's going to stay with them for a special reason, that's, that's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Hey, you said you weren't prepared, but you seem, you seem prepared to me. You must have <laughs> well, thought about this before. I do know what the questions are, so you didn't surprise me too much. How many times have you asked them? Uh, 64 so oh, far. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot. Charlie, this conversation has been something special to us. So thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure, although I think a more emotional one for many of our listeners than we expected. And we really, we really appreciate you coming to talk books and to talk about life and about your family with us. This has been a special edition of Inside the Writer's Studio, hosted by Ann Bogle, the modern Mrs. Darcy. I'm Charlie Lovett. And the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My novel, Escaping Dreamland, will be published on September 22nd and will be available wherever books are sold. And you can order signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Inside the Writer Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local book independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episodes, I'll be talking to debut novelist Rudy Ruiz and international bestseller Dean Kuntz. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.